All right. Well, good morning. My name is Grant. Uh, Michael introduced me here a little bit, but I'm excited to bring a message for you here this morning on such a fun topic. I actually thought about just putting all the lighting red, right? Just get in the mood. Actually, okay, let's start off on a different note. I, who here drives Highway 1 around Abbotsford often? Is it part of your commutes? I know for Mission, you hit Harris, got one. Okay, maybe I'll talk to just you then, Dan. Everyone else can ignore me. Uh, I need some help figuring this out, because here's the thing. I grew up in Surrey. I did that drive a lot. Castle Fun Park, right? Super fun. Cultus Lake. And then I started going to college in Abbotsford. And so I spend a lot of time. I still have lots of family and friends out in Surrey. It's just back and forth, back and forth all the time. And some number of years ago, there's this area where uh, if you're heading east and you're going up the hill just before the, Mount, before the Mount Lehman exit, and you're heading that direction, usually especially around the evening, Maybe some of you can like already smell what I'm about to talk about here. Okay, we know it, right? Uh, like, what is happening there? Suddenly, like something like five or six years ago, now it's we call it Stink Hill because you just go up and it's just putrid, right? And it's unfortunate. It's kind of like here's the thing: we know it's so regular because even now when we drive, my daughter, uh, toddler, she she knows it and she always has to remind us like it's not her. She, we're going up and it smells bad. She's like, like no change diaper, not poopy. It's not me. Like okay, okay, we know, we know. It's just outside. And I think the thing is, it's unfortunate. It's like this repulsive representation of the valley of you know, welcome to farmland. And here's Abbotsford, and you just get hit by this wall of stink. Like, yes, I want to talk about it's a little bit too, you know, on uh, when you go across the mission bridge, it's starting to get that, and the wind shifts and it hits you too. And I head home from work, and I think honestly, here's the here's where it's affecting me is I think that's I, I'm telling myself that's the reason why like our friends and family don't come out our way as much to visit anymore. Like, no, no, you you come out our way. This morning, we're talking about one of the probably the most repulsive things that Christians believe in stinky turns people away. And I get it. It's, it's because the thing is, it's supposed to be repulsive. Hell, this could be fun. I was like, how many times can I say that up on stage this morning? And some of you might be here like, oh, shoot, I brought a friend and church isn't normally like this. I swear. Uh, it'll be good. It's something worth talking about because it's something that is a real stumbling block. I think whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're a skeptic, a lot of times you can get into some of the aspects of faith. You can get into the idea of like, okay, there's a God, there's something bigger out there. Jesus seems really neat. And then when you start talking about this thing in heaven and hell, right? Okay, but I don't like that topic. I don't want to wrestle with that. The blunt reality though is we spend Sundays and Bible studies and community groups and worship times that we talk about salvation and eternity and the redemption, the restoration of God and, and the forgiveness from sin. And every time we say those things, we're saying salvation from something, redemption from something, right? What is that thing we need saving from? There's something, if we're gonna celebrate restoration, we need restoration from something. And that resulting path is something that you know, starts leading to a topic like hell. So we're going to talk about this side of things too. It's a very real something block. Charles Darwin said in an autobiography when he talked about how he moved towards atheism and completely abandoned his faith, and he said about Christianity, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include much of my family and friends, they'll be everlastingly punished this is a damnable doctrine. 
So this morning, we're going to dive into this topic a little bit, see what the Bible says, wrestle through some of the questions, and talk about what it means for us right now, wherever we're at, if we're following Jesus, if we're not. Because um, here's the thing, the idea of the afterlife, it's actually a pretty common mindset, right? Of all the religious things that, uh, you know, are kind of still hanging around in our world, uh, the idea of something happening in the afterlife is kind of this funny topic because I find a lot of people and you know it's in TV shows and pop culture a lot of people talk about yeah there's something right there's something that's still coming but when it gets religiousy especially when it starts talking about heaven versus hell or or whatever the other place uh, suddenly it's like no no those are just religiousy things that the church made up and in fact no like church stuff Christians stick on Jesus right Jesus is what you should focus on. Uh, uh, Eastern New Age thinker Deepak Chopra, Chopra has a whole thing claiming about how Jesus, if you you've took all the look of Jesus, everything he teaches, uh, very popular uh, influence in a lot of our New Age thinking, you just focus on the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And everyone thinks about Jesus as like, it's blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted, and the peacemakers, right? The first will be last, the last will be first, turn the other cheek, right? Those are the Jesus things. And I think the problem is we don't actually read Jesus because the idea of hell comes from Jesus. In fact, the first time we see direct dialogue about it comes in the Sermon on the Mount. A few verses later, suddenly we get Jesus saying, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose part of your body than for it to be cast into hell. So it's the same thing about your hand. If your hand causes you to sin, throw it away. It's better to lose that than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, another quote that just builds some of the framework or foundation for what we're talking about this morning. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he says, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell, if it lay in my power. But unfortunately, it has the full support of scripture and specifically of Jesus's own words. It has always been held by the church and it has the full support of reason. So we can't hide from it. This morning, we're going to be working through a passage in the Gospel of Luke, and, and it's a parable where Jesus is sharing, and what he's doing is he's talking to people about these kind of this split of, of what happens, and you can follow God's plan, you can follow your plan, and there's all sorts of parables that talk about the difference between God's design for your life or your own design for your life. And in Luke chapter 16, there's a parable uh, called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus. And so we're going to, it's going to be on the screen. If you got your phones, if you got your Bibles, we're just going to work through it starting at verse 19 and using that as a framework to talk about this topic of hell. So starting at Luke 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. I was going to do a scan. Is anyone wearing purple today? Don't take it personally, Wanda. It's not going to play out too well, but it's, it's not about what you're wearing. Just brace yourself. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So let's take a break here. This is the start of this very common question, what happens after death? 
And unfortunately, to spoil it for you, we actually know very little beyond some imagery and metaphors scripturally. Uh, we have to lie heavily on just some of the core foundations that the Bible provides in terms of talking about what is the goals of life here on earth and kind of a direction that happens after. But the thing is, all throughout Jesus' ministry, there's this dialogue about eternal life, everlasting life with God, new creation, restoration, resurrection. And uh, John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. These are concepts that we can't really relate to or even fully understand. And in fact, actually, a very naturalistic mindset. I'm often really surprised when we still entertain these ideas if you're not following Jesus or following uh, a path that kind of explains it because it will be easier to just ignore all of this and just to assume like there's nothing in our natural view of the world that gives us a sense that something happens after. But that's not actually normal, right? I have yet to be at a funeral or memorial service where the idea of something after isn't talked about still, where there's still, there's comfort, there's peace, there's, there's something. It, TV shows in the secular world are centered around it. They're referenced constantly. There's something after death, right? It's so common. We all know a loved one. We all have loved ones who have passed away, and we miss them, and it hurts, and it affects our lives. And we know and we feel like there's something wrong with that can't just be the end and we're a blip and it's over. So we start to just, our minds seem like they're tied to something. Uh, one quote says, if, if we feel like they're, we're tied or designed for something that's not working out here, it's because we're designed for something that doesn't exist here on earth. In fact, there's even TV shows that are solely, fully sold, like around it. Why are we so fascinated and intrigued and entertaining these ideas, whether you have a faith position or not? It's because we're made for something more. And that's all good. You know, we can talk and entertain about that when we're talking about resurrection and eternity and peace and removal from all the evil that's here and all the pain and the suffering and death. But then the thing is, if we have, if we have good and evil, if we have sin and salvation, right, if we have right and wrong, justice and evil and injustice and a God who offers a choice and free will, you know, we dwell on the, the good place, we'll call it. There's a TV show that's centered all around that idea just recently came out. But what about the bad place? It's the thing we don't like to talk about too much, right? The, the good place, sure, okay, there's something after, but what about if, if we have this dichotomy in life, then surely there's, there's a reason why something is good and, and versus bad, right? There's a separation. There's something that changes up there. And so what we're going to do is, is we've got to talk about that other thing a little bit and be real about it. We gotta talk about that repulsive, stinky, evil thing that we can't even fathom to exist, but by reason, something needs to offset the fact that if there's something that we're dreaming about, of peace and resurrection and restoration, what's the other thing? So let's just pick up uh, Luke 16, verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, the Greek term for the place of dead souls, uh, it can be translated, some translations, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, the rich man, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So we're talking about the bad place. Just to be clear, and because if you're wearing purple, I don't want you to panic. This story isn't about because the guy was rich, he's gone to hell. That's not what the focus is about. There's a bigger dichotomy that you can split up here, but we're not heavily focused on that part. 
What we are here is, so these two men died. There's two places they went to, and we start getting some little descriptions of the bad place, the repulsive place, and that's kind of the point. In scripture, language is used to describe what the opposite of restoration and eternal life is. Pain, suffering, smoke, darkness, endlessly nothing. The thing is, it shouldn't be something relatable. It should be something that we just read as, that's bad. I am in agony, in torment, in this fire. So much so that just a drip of water would help him. This is the bad place. Already we're getting it like such a cheery note this morning, right? I want to acknowledge that there's reasons why we don't like talking about this, and they're very important to acknowledge because this isn't just an idea, right? We're not talking about just an idea, and this is a framework we need to have where it's just philosophy, and let's just get down and figure out, well, what does he say about this? We all know people who are far from God. We all know people who reject God completely, outwardly. In fact, we know people who have died, and by all of our understanding and experience, they may have never even come close to God, and we hope and we pray that that, that gospel message was spoken into their life, and they turned their life towards accepting a God and a Savior. But if we start having this dialogue, we don't feel good because we know that it affects real people. This isn't just an idea. This is really important to acknowledge because we can get so lost in thinking this is just mechanics, but no, this is actually, this is people. And then this helps us also align with God's heart in this. This isn't just an idea that's going between this is people who are lost, who need saving, who still turn away and reject God. Unfortunately, just because we dislike something, though, doesn't negate its existence or its possible existence. So we don't like to wrestle with the top of hell because it doesn't feel good, because it hits us emotionally and personally. I think there's other things, too, where we start creating mechanics and we start to put God on trial and say, this isn't fair. Just because somebody, whatever, they did a few petty crimes in their life, you know, you, you start weighing what's good and bad. It's not fair, eternal punishment and torment. And we need to be really careful with this. Uh, but again, this is uh, skeptic Richard Dawkins said, I can't think of many people who deserve to go to hell, but the people who teach of his existence seem to be a prime candidate. We need to be really careful of how we start to think about God's justice. Because here's the thing, like even when I start thinking about right and wrong, I'm coming from a perspective, living here in a relatively simple, comfortable life, Southwest British Columbia, Canada, and it seems like hell is this insanely overproportionately unjust result for a life turned away from God. The, th the thing is, we get this mindset because hell seems unfair, but the majority of humanity, seven billion people on this planet, face evils. They face the worst of humanity every single day. They face the destruction, the stuff that we see on the news, war right now happening in Israel and Palestine, terrorist bombings, buildings flattening, unjust. There's villages where people come in, steal the children, sold into sex slavery. And there's a different narrative than our quiet, comfortable uh, Miroslav Volt, Volf, who was a philosopher, lived in Croatia, saw all these horrid things, said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge. 
See, we need to take a big picture here that actually we, we sit here and we're all happy about the idea of God's forgiveness and God's loving and God's gracious. And that for a lot of people is the most repulsive thing about the faith. That there are evil people in this world that God actually loves so much in their lost obedience to Satan that he says, I will forgive you still. See, we sit here saying like hell and God's judgment, God being just, it's so awful. I would reject all of this because there's no way God could be unfair. We're in the minority in that thought. God sets a bar for justice, but what we're going to talk about next is this isn't this philosophy of God picking and choosing and we just don't get any say in it. The whole narrative of the Bible is actually God longing and reaching and extending out to us. And instead, we're unfortunately in a world with free choice where we're grasping at who are we going to follow? Who are we going to pick to rule our lives? But the fact is, God's, the doctrine of forgiveness is actually what should repulse us. I know one of the things, it was a, a beautiful devotion. Um, if you've been coming to church for a little while, the, the whole narrative goes to God sends his son, Jesus, who comes, models true life for us, teaches and everything. But actually what he really came to do was to take on sin. And while he was innocent, he was crucified. He died on a cross. And beside him, there was two other criminals. And one of them says, you are surely the son of God. You like take control, rule of my life. And Jesus, in that last moment, this guy was a criminal his whole life, far from God, no connection. And Jesus is like, you get it. You got it. I'll see you in heaven. And that moment there disrupts pretty much everything we think about faith, where we think it's, it's doing the right things and having this life and getting enough tick boxes and whatnot. God disrupts whatever we think about justice at every corner and every turn. And so here's the thing. We, we can talk about justice and grace, but I, I sympathize because honestly with a lot of you, you probably don't know many war criminals. I don't think there's any in our church. How can somebody who's just kind of going through life, right, just some petty crimes, right, the person who's broken into my car and stole my work boots, right, they're not on the same page as terrorists. How can their fate be the same? What's going on with that? So what we need to do is spend a bit of time and just look at the nature of hell. What is this bad place? What's the, what is it actually? So we're going to pick up at Luke 16, verse 24. And this is the, the rich man in Hades. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So let's talk a little bit about some of these depictions and some of the, the Bible's narrative of what this bad place is all about. Uh, just to start off with like the word hell, uh, typically translated from what we get is a few words in scripture. Uh, hell is actually just an English word created to understand some other words in Hebrew, sheol, which is used throughout the Old Testament too, which literally means a grave under the ground, not just like a burial site, but uh, something subterranean, something mass. 
Uh, in Greek, we get the word Hades, which is closely linked to Greek mythology. It's this place of dead souls. It's a place where you kind of go in waiting of whatever's going to happen next and whether the gods accept you or they, they reincarnate you, do whatever. But the place of all the dead souls, they go to Hades where there's um, actually, I haven't watched Hercules in a while. I forget who's ruling over. He's got the blue fire hair, right? But so those words are often used in, in uh, another geographical place. There's a place called Gehenna, used in a lot of imagery. It's a place where people and often actually children were burned as sacrifices, this place of fire, this place of evil to pagan gods that was nearby in Jerusalem, in Israel, where people would have known about this place. Later, it was turned into a garbage pit. So that was used as a geographical place of just saying, like, bad. Like, this is the worst of anything around here. It'd be like us saying, uh, I can't make fun of Surrey that many times today, so I won't. I won't. But hell when we see it in the Bible, it's just, it literally is translated from those words or from when the context is implying uh, a pit or bottomless or death. Hell is an English word where we've tried to kind of capture when Jesus is talking about the bad place. He talks about salvation on one side and then in a context says there's the other thing. What happens? The other thing. And then we get the description. So a bit of a list. I had this list of descriptions all throughout the scriptures. Again, most of them coming from the words of Jesus Lots in the New Testament. Uh, this isn't like an Old Testament thing where you get the mindset of like, this is just old school church and old things and it, you know Jesus wasn't about hell or whatnot. Uh, words we actually get about this is overwhelming destruction, no rest, sorrows, torment, unquenchable fire, a lake of fire, burning sulfur, blazing furnace, chains of darkness, bottomless pit, separation, and absence of God. These are the kind of words that have inspired centuries of art and depictions of the afterlife and music and genres and stories. Unfortunately, also have inspired this effort and focus to try to create a very visual narrative of what hell is. And there's a thing that we, we actually miss a lot. What's important here is in, in the Bible, there are images to try to describe things that we can't actually relate to. And the goal is they're not trying to paint a very literal, real picture. They're trying to paint something that we can just almost like a, and I'm not going to use the word exaggeration, but because that's, that's not actually the point here, but trying to create a picture of something that's bad, right? These are all bad things. But again, just to point it out really clearly, right? Like, for example, it says darkness and it says fire in the same sentence, and that doesn't work out, right? If you understand anything about light, you can start theorizing, like, ah, oh, there's a dark fire or whatnot, but then we're speculating on something that that's not the point. Jesus isn't saying speculate to figure out this thing. He's saying bad. So focus on the truth. What's next? What else is Jesus talking about? Now, I've heard this talked about as saying it's all symbology, and then we get this idea that maybe hell's not that bad. But symbols often don't mean less than. Symbols almost always mean more than. Like a perfect example, right? Like a wedding ring, uh, and I actually have a tattoo. Sorry, right in the mic. I have a tattoo uh, representing, I made a commitment to my wife saying like, we're gonna, I'm gonna love you exclusively. We're gonna, I'm gonna support you. Uh, it kind of governs all of my actions. It governs my sexuality. It focuses what I'm gonna be doing, full life commitment, right? Just a little symbol here, a little doodle on my finger is just a small little thing, right? The commitment, the symbol it represents is way, way bigger. Here at church, we, churches have crosses that we represent for the Christian faith. Now, the cross is literally two pieces of wood used by the Roman Empire to execute people. 
what it represents is something way bigger of God literally sending his son down. It's a much bigger thing, right? Symbols don't mean less than, they mean more than. So when we have these symbols of hell, even though we're not talking about literal fire, that's actually also dark, that's actually a bottomless pit, that actually is a lake. There's something bigger going on that's more than, and everything here is pointing to something to be abhorred separation, a great chasm. We saw it right there in that, in that passage. Uh, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This seems to be the underlying and most apt reality of what hell is, a separation, a removal from. And here's the thing, it's, it's a removal from God and people who don't really, you know, if, if you're a skeptic, you're listening to this, or if you're kind of wrestling through, pushing back on faith, and you're like, hey, that's fine, I don't really like God anyways. Like, hell sounds like it might not be that bad. What we can't understand is the fact that here on earth, even the most ardent uh, atheist, the person who's running as hard as they can, hateful towards God, is not fully separated from God here on earth. The common grace, the common sustenance of life is still a connection from God reaching out to us, and then in hell, what we get is that actually finally hitting. C.S. Lewis brilliantly worked out this understanding the nature of hell in this book called The Great Divorce. And it, it's, it's worth the read. It's, it's bizarre. It's fascinating. And what it is, it's a depiction of a group of people from, from hell, and they go on a field trip to heaven for one day. And they go on, they're on this bus and they get out to heaven. And then it's all these descriptions. These people go out and uh, when they get into this place and they talk about how absolutely incredible this place is, but it's, it's like hyper real. It's so real that like the grass hurts to walk on and they, they try to like go into the water and the water like pushes them back. And they talk to people and it's too bright and it's painful, but they also know full well know that this is better, this is good, but they can't quite handle it. And what's fascinating is Nobody who goes on this field trip, they all slowly have their different reasons. They would rather live in their sin that keeps them from experiencing the reality of the place they're in, and they all turn back. They all turn away. And C.S. Lewis ends up describing the nature of hell this way, uh, which I find so fascinating, is it's a place not created to punish you, and you, you fit the category, like you're going to get punished here with nails, you're going to get punished here with fire, it's actually a place that our sin creates for ourselves because we live a life where we say either, God, you are in charge and you know what's best for me and I'm going to have to follow and understand your design. Or we live and say, God, I want to do what's best for me. I want to do everything I want to do. Sin, this feels good. I like it right now. And we'll ignore all that other stuff. I want to be in charge because anything like that sounds like servanthood. We have our entire nations built around my own independent freedom, right? So why would we give that up to a God? And so then C.S. Lewis describes the reality of hell is that sin slowly becoming us to the point where we even cease to exist. So he talks about it with one person uh, who just has this uh, heart of bitterness. And he says like this, hell for them is an endless noise of grumbling. The thing is it begins with a grumbling mood. You yourself, you're, you're distinct from it. Perhaps you even criticize that grumble. And and in a dark hour, you might actually like that grumble. You might embrace the mood, but you can still repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. And there will be no you left to even criticize the mood of grumbling, nor even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. 
Hell is described as the result of sin, not a place prepared for us for torture, but just the reality, the result. The thing is, and again, Lewis continues, it's not a question of God sending us to hell, but instead it's, there's something in each single one of us growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Romans 1.21 gives the exact same, uh, it kind of reflects that too, of saying God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things and they even, even themselves rather than the creator. Notice in the parable too, the rich man doesn't say, I want out, I want to go to that place. He still looks for excuses for blaming. I'm in agony, this is not fair. Please send the servant to help me out. I want water. There's not enough water here. Give, them, give me some water. He's still finding people to blame. He's still f- putting himself in charge, demanding. Doesn't even ask the question, can I go there? It's too harsh, harsh to say it straight that we choose hell for ourselves, but it's not that unlike saying, like, here's the thing, I really like chocolate, and I could just keep eating more and more and more chocolate, and inevitably, my pancreas is going to stop producing the insulin, right? It's not like me saying I chose diabetes, but I am choosing the results of that. There's more than enough information saying it. The gospel and what Jesus is saying is your sin is crushing and killing you. You need to stop it. God has a better design for you. And instead, we say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not choosing hell, but I still really like the sin, and I want to be in control of it. I don't want God to intervene, it's just the natural course, course of events. In the long run, brilliant quote here wrapping up by uh, Mark Clark. In the long run, the answer to all of those who object to this idea of hell, who can't fathom a gospel that, or a God who would send people to this, in self, you could ask a question, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out the past sins of the damned and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering miraculous help? He has done that in Jesus. Are you asking God to forgive them? They don't want to be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is exactly what he does. See, this idea of hell, we put God on trial and we say, God, this is not fair. How could something be so awful? The question we should be asking is maybe the perplexity of God. Why do we have free choice? Why even allow us to sin? But I I think we know the answer to that question, right? We wouldn't even be able to ask that question. There wouldn't be free will then. We'd just be autonomous. We all know that free choice is the foundation of relationships. In our lives, we have relationships. We have love because we choose that for each other. Um, Honestly, a way that is coming to my mind, how I can relate to this, like I've got two cats. One of them is this big orange fluff ball. He is the cuddliest thing ever. Like you sit down, he is on your lap. I'm convinced he is hardwired that he doesn't know how to sit on his own, not with somebody. He's like so cuddly, right? I have another cat too I've had longer and she's pretty cold shoulder. She's fiercely independent. Exercises her free will all the time, right? And very rarely she might grace you with her presence. And who do you think I feel like is a bit more special with when they actually come over to me? Right? The one that I swear actually has like the free will and actually uh, integrates it. The orange cat, not really. Uh, but w- the thing is, I've never experienced a more relatable way to understand God's pain, maybe, his pride in ways, than, than when I had my daughter. And here's the thing, because with Adia, 
every single decision and every single thing I'll say to the best of my ability, and I'm a mess, I'm just a human dad, young, I don't have a clue what I'm doing with you know, temper and impatience and stuff, but every single thing in my power I'll choose to do is for the best of her. I think so many of you parents would say the same thing. And you, you see a, a path and a future for them that is better than they could really fathom. Like, I'm, I want so much more for you to far exceed me. Let me get out of the way. Everything I want for you is so good. But the thing is, free will exists, right? And you see that even in a toddler. I can't even get through brushing her teeth without finding the, the clash of parenting versus her own autonomy and we're in fights, right? If it was her way and she got everything she wants, she'd just eat ketchup all the time. She would stand on top of the stove. I think she'd run out into the street into traffic. It would not go well. Her, like this desire to like, I have my own independence. Let me do things my way. And then I start thinking like, man, <laughs> how does God feel about us? But she still comes back to me, my daughter. And, and I'll, go, I'll go to her too, and we have these little fights, and she's crying, and it's like literally last night too, brushing teeth and big tantrum and stuff, and I'll go back, and then she still embraces me and receives me again. But the reality is uh, that may stop, and there may be a day or a time that she doesn't return. And what can I do but try and try and try and wait for her to receive me again? My heart broke when I was writing this because I know some of you have experienced that for real. And, and that's a piece of a testimony of God's love and God's patience with us too. What's dangerous here is we can then start taking this concept of hell and heaven. So, okay, we've understood there's this thing. It's, it's our sin driving us. This isn't a picture of a torture chamber and God picking and choosing. You go here, you go here. But we could still use the concept of hell as a threat to motivate. And maybe what this is, is God created a threat and uh, you know, like there's a carrot on the stick and there's a threat of how to guide our free will choices. And I know so many people who grew up in religion or in churches where salvation was presented as an escape from fire and flames, right? Like there's literally camps that have nights where they call them turn or burn nights and they do a big bonfire and they say, do you want that to be you? Say the prayer and you're good, right? You got, you got the, they make literally a ticket and a pass. And by God's grace, I trust that God still works even through our very ill attempt at teaching and pointing people towards Jesus. But that does not create relationship. It creates fear. It might create some obedience, but it does not change and turn hearts. It breaks my heart when I, I hear youth who, are, who I've worked with who are crushed and shaken because they are unsure if they're saved and they just have this fear of the bad thing and of hell and they still have no idea, am I actually saved? Did I do enough of the stuff? Did I say the thing and I, I, I slipped up again and what if God rejects me? And it crushes me because I thought, man, I, if, if you read the scriptures and you read Jesus and you see there's this heartbreaking that's not picking and choosing and saying, please just come to me. Threats do not make heart changes. And in fact, what it really misses the point is the fact that hell was not made for people. Check this out in Matthew 25, 41. Hear this part, uh, Jesus speaking. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We don't know much about this cosmic battle of Satan, but what we do know is that there was a falling out of one of God's servants, Satan, who said, I have a better plan than you, God. I'm gonna do my thing. It's a very one-sided battle. This isn't really a war. God cast him out. For whatever bizarre reason, this Satan 
has hell coming and eternal destruction. And, and that's the thing. Hear that? Did you catch that piece? Hell was not made for us. But Satan doesn't want to be alone. So the snake, right at the beginning of the Garden of Eden, the story says, I need to pull people with me. I still have a better plan. He doesn't want to be alone. He knows he's lost. But he still hates God. Again, in a book called The Screwtape Letters is a, a painted picture of, in the perspective of demons who are trying to persuade human beings away from God. And what they do is they talk about, in, in that context, the enemy who is God. They hate God. They already know they have no power, but hopefully they can still convince people into their tainted goals. Hell isn't a place where bad people party. It's not Satan's headquarters where demons rule. It's a one-sided cosmic battle that is pretty much over already. But Satan is being punished, and he's trying to pull people away. The threat of hell misses the narrative of salvation completely. The idea of God picking and choosing is sometimes way too common of a thought that slips in, but it's not an idea that's found in the scriptures at all. What is found in the scriptures is what we know to be very true in humanity, in our hearts, is the fact that we can't run from something that's scary. So the idea of the Bible isn't presenting hell as something that's just really scary and do whatever it takes to avoid that. Actually, true heart change comes from finding a new love and a new affection. So a perfect example is uh, a while ago uh, when, again, when my daughter was born, I was like, okay, hey, I need to get a bit healthier. I wanted to lose a bit of weight. I wanted to get a bit more athletic, probably eat a little bit healthier, save me some money too. It was really hard to do because I, I, I'll drive home late from youth group, right, and there's Wendy's, and I just really, really want a junior bacon cheeseburger. That's a hard discipline to get going in my life, especially if it's just I just want to stop eating healthy, but all I'm thinking about is stopping eating healthy, or sorry, I want to stop eating fast food, and all I'm thinking about is the fast food that I'm not eating anymore. And what it took was not just focusing on what I was trying to remove myself from. What it took was actually a new focus and a new goal, a new direction. I needed a motivation that when I started to realize a future where I want to be athletic, I want to be mountain biking and skiing and running and rock climbing and hiking with my daughter healthy, and I started feeling better, and I started seeing the wins, and I started to fall in love with that future and that potential, that changed my goals. Diet and exercise became really easy at that point. It's not because of trying to run from something. We can't have our hearts turned towards God because we're scared of something else. That might change some of our behavior, but our hearts will not focus on God unless we have an affection and a love towards God. And beautifully, that is what God did through Jesus. He sent Jesus. And that's why we get this thing like, I kind of like this guy. And everything he brings through all this, listen to these verses. Here is what, what the solution is. Here's what the goal is that's supposed to guide us away. Uh, he starts off acknowledging Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under God's grace. If there's one thing you're going to hear this morning, it's this. The picture of hell is not God picking and choosing. The picture of heaven and hell is God pleading God begging, saying, stop listening to the snake. 
Stop listening to Satan. Sin is pulling you away from me and convincing you that you can be the ruler of your own life. Come back to me. The fate Satan is leading you down towards was never meant for you. God's begging on his knees to the point of sending his son Jesus who stood in the path of sin and death for all of us and he died for this cause. God is asking, saying, please, like a loving parent, Jesus refers to God as father. We refer to God as father. Let me lead you, let me guide you again. Father God has a plan for you. He knows what you were created to be and that can fully be realized in eternity, after this time even. Our response is not to live in fear or the threat of hell, but instead to see the hope in God. So this whole concept of there's a good place, there's a bad place, that is a sad reality that needs to exist if the idea of free choice, if the idea of sin does exist. Our choice is saying, who's in charge? Jesus offers hope and redemption beyond anything we could create for ourselves. That's the whole point. We can't do it. Sin is about the best we got, and we experience that all the time. Some of you might be experiencing what, what happens already when you come to the end of yourself, and you're already feeling that. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis brilliantly say, says it in uh, The Abolition of Man, is the reality that our sin is not these massive radical acts. It's our heart posture of saying, I know what's best for me. And that usually comes at the cost of saying, God's wrong and you're wrong and everything else is wrong. And you just focus on yourself. And that, you start seeing the isolation it creates. You start seeing the separation it creates. What this should point us to is a motivation to run after God, to move and orient closer to God. What this should also do is, by all means, help us point others towards God. By whatever means possible, 1 Corinthians 9 says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I hope that this dialogue can help shift our thinking from a place of fear, from a place that God's design for our world is not do the right things or else. Instead, it's God saying, please, I have something better for you. I designed you to be in Eden. Eden broke. I'm recreating it. Come be a part of that narrative. Hell is not a place we need to live in fear of. And if you are struggling with that, I would love to chat with you after the service too. I'd love to give you uh, a little bit more reassurance too of why we can fully trust in and believe in and affirm that what God did through Jesus, he can do for us because that's the promise. That is the ask of faith, is not enough things in a row to do, just to trust in God. I'm just gonna wrap up with prayer and I'm gonna exemplify too for us all here what, what that looks like and, and again, what the posture of moving towards Jesus looks like. And it sounds like this, God, I've come to, con I've tried to be in control of my life and it's not working out. God, my sin has kept me from you and I want that to change. I trust in your plan. God, I trust that you know what's best. And I believe that you have conquered sin and death and I believe that you promised the same for me. God, you are in charge. You are in control. Help me live that out truly. 
God, thank you for this hope that you, you bring to us, that, God, this is a vision of you desperately trying to pull us back to you. This isn't a threat of us in fear of what side are you going to push us towards on the line. God, if we trust in you, if we trust that what you said you did, you did do, and you'll do it for us, we know that there is restoration, there is redemption, there is salvation, there is the good place. God, there is by your side, there is in your presence. Please help us not live in fear of separation. If we're moving towards you, God, that is what you ask. And God, help us be that same light for others. God, that we can model moving close towards you. God, that we can model Jesus, that we can model the thing to love to turn our affections towards you and not to model a threat. God, we love you because of the things that you do for us, God, but also because of who you are and that you are good. Amen.